The following podcast is brought to you by cdkoffers.com. Use offer code broken silicon for 25% off Windows codes and die shrink for 3% off all other codes. Links in the description and I will say more later, but for now, let's get to the show. And welcome to Broken Silicon, a PC hardware and gaming podcast. I am your host, Tom. And today I am joined by someone who's pretty much, I think, one of the perfect guests to have after the recent A100 announcement. I will let my guest introduce himself, as always. I am an AI developer, and I like uh, to listen to Broken Silicon. I think it's uh, one of the best uh, PC uh, hardware podcasts out there. You got to calm down with giving me compliments here. This is me interviewing you. Oh, <laughs> let me, let me, let me, let's open up with this question, actually, before I even ask you anything personally. Jack Phillips writes in, which you, anyone can if they support us on, well, not anyone if, at the right tiers can if you support me on Patreon. And he asks, how do you feel about AI being an overused buzzword in some situations? I would say most situations in the mainstream, actually. Uh, it's a bit annoying. I mean, uh, I see what uh, you can, what amazing things you can do with AI. Then some uh, idiots come along and uh, claim to do uh, thing X, and maybe and probably it's possible to do thing X. But uh, I know from personal experience that a lot of things take a lot of effort to get them to work. And, uh, well, uh, you see sometimes idiots claiming that and having no idea about the field and about AI and then completely failing. And in the end, it's bad for my field. Uh, I don't know, maybe investors get mm. burned out on the idea uh, AI and that's really a good point, actually, because it doesn't matter if it was obvious to you that it was bullshit. The fact that they invested in a company that everyone knew wasn't going to pan out who were well informed and then it didn't work. They might stop investing in the right programs. Actually, this is something my brother Dan who's in genetics research, talks about how genetics and DNA, I mean, our DNA from AMD, DNA is a buzzword too. Uh, and you see people just like putting like DNA, like all, all it, if you can put DNA in something, I think it's actually very similar to AI, how it's just one of the modern buzzwords like blockchain or something. Uh, you know, your uh, startup with a blockchain-based AI. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard of multiple startups with blockchain AI, which frankly doesn't really make any sense if you think about how AI works, right? It's low latency and quick uh, like neural communications. If you have to distribute something over a blockchain that's decentralized, it, there's no way that really works. Mm, I have seen, seen some approaches where they use blockchain for generating user data. Mm-hmm. And ensuring that user data isn't misused, but kind of the most thing I can think about where blockchain might be useful, usable in AI. So Bollocks also writes in and he says, where does one even start wrangling Robobo's artificial brain into thinking the thoughts you want it to think these days? 
Lots of stuff about the deeds, not much on where do I sign up. So I think what Bullocks is asking kind of is, well, and it's kind of a question I have for you. Where do you even get started, right? Like, I know you don't want to go too much into your history, but like, where do these companies generally even start working on AI? Like, because what, like me and Dan did a lot of background research, you know, before this kind of looking up stuff. And it's like, I get how you improve on an algorithm, but where was square one? Well, I mean, it started in the late 80s, early 90s, and a lot of uh, interesting things we are still using got developed uh, in that time, but uh, it was a dead field with a couple of of guys Mm -hmm. and uh, with basically no computing power. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the ideas from the 90s are still used and part of some modern state-of-the-art stuff. So what got you into, you know, training, machine learning, all of these, all of these buzzwords? What made you want to start getting into this field? It was uh, back in uh, 2015 when uh, the world best uh, Go player got uh, beaten by AlphaGo, and a lot of and it got a lot of media attention. And I believe this also was a point where AI in general got a lot of recognition. And then mm-hmm. I heard about the algorithms. Uh, they are uh, like brain structures, but on the computer, and they are capable of, of, of solving these really complex problems uh, that are basically impossible to hard code. And it just sounds awesome. Uh, yeah, you just found it fascinating. Yeah. And uh, then I asked a couple of uh, friends, and I told a couple of friends, oh, I know I have heard about this amazing thing called neural networks. And they're, yeah, we heard about them. That was actually one of the first things we were going to start talking about. So neural networks, again, something that I often see as a buzzword. How would you describe what neural networks are? And let's just start getting into just, is that's really the point of this episode, just at least roughly, vaguely explaining what it is people are doing with these expensive graphics cards and <laughs> high-end chips. I mean, because I, I, you know, people say, you know, neural networks, like what is a neural network? And uh, what is training a neural network? Uh, a, a neural network is basically a, a web of uh, lots of uh, hundreds of, of, of millions of connections. And all of these connections uh, have are weights and uh, all of these weights are parameter. And uh, you try to optimize all of these parameters um, to learn some representation. For example, uh, mm-hmm. uh, let's look at a cat or dog classifier. Uh, you, you want mm-hmm. to know is this a picture of a cat or is this a picture of a dog? So you, uh, you 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 feed your pixel values in the top of the neural network, and in the bottom there comes a yes or no, a yes or no answer or a cat or a dog answer out. Mm-hmm. And uh, when when you start with random weights. Uh, your output is complete garbage. But what you then do is uh, you have uh, your data is labeled. So you uh, so you for tell them this uh, this image is a dog and this image is a cat, and um, and uh, you then uh, look what is the output of the neural net and what is the label and with uh, and you have then a loss or error function that somehow uh, the, that in some way defines uh, the how accurate the neural network is and mm. then you go back. 
uh, up the layers, uh, back to the neural net, to the beginning. And this is training. This is the expensive, this computation expensive part. And then you look at all of your millions of parameters and figure out which parameters I have to change a bit to get a, a better representation of the output uh, with this input. And you do this a bunch of times. And then uh, in the end, uh, if it works, your neural net learns the representation of your data. Right. And so that's what you would generally say you do, right? Is try, is you, you typically are running these um, simulations. Simulations isn't the right word, right? But like you're running this network and you're seeing what the output is. And then your job is to go back in and find ways to improve its ability to do this. And the example you gave me was that, right? Categorizing as an example, this picture is a cat. This one has a dog. And that's in fact different than, because some people just think it's, you know, finding things in pictures, but actually finding things in pictures is entirely different from the picture or from the uh, AI algorithm being able to go, this has it or this doesn't. Actually finding something in the picture is an entirely different problem, right? An algorithm might know there's a dog in a picture, but it might not be able to find the dog. It just knows this picture contains one. What are the challenges in training a neural network? Uh, well, um, uh, one of the greatest challenges is, unfortunately, is uh, the data. And uh, I see a lot of this buzzword startup even screwing uh, even that one up. Uh, for mm -hmm. example, you are a dog lover. You have a data set with 9,500 dog pictures and just 500 cat pictures. And if I train a neural network with this data set, it will mm. really quickly reach 95% accuracy on this data set. But I will ensure you it's not going to learn any useful representation whatsoever. It always right. says it's a dog. And right, because it's just got good at categorizing those pictures, maybe not all pictures. It that just involve a says dog. it's a dog uh, in 100% of the cases. Mm -hmm. uh, it is uh, optimization function always tries to find the shortest shortest way to minimize right. the error, and if uh, it can achieve ninety five percent accuracy by just always outputting it's a dog, it will mm -hmm. do that. So uh, it's really uh, important that you have a proper data set, like large and varied, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's also uh, uh, you can also, for example, have all your dog pictures are, are the pictures of, of your dog and then you are showing there's a neural net uh, a picture of your brother's dog and there's a neural net uh, thinks what the heck is that and uh, this is also true for, for, for angles you, you need lots of different angles and uh, mm, yeah uh, and uh, for example the algorithm just optimize on the data you, you feed in if you only import dog pictures where you're petting your, your dog, you know that uh, will start to think that uh, there needs to be a Tom who pets a dog to be a dog. What is, of right. course, wrong? <laughs> you know, I actually have an example I can give. Um, we had like a light programming and 3D modeling, just general engineering uh, set of classes in my high school. I was actually very lucky. And there was one where we had to program an AI loop 
to sort marbles correctly, to, to be able to identify the right marbles and put them in the right bin. Are they clear marbles? You know, can a light shine through them or are they not? And I had this classmate, his name was actually Lou. And what we ended up making worked 100% of the time, but it became abundantly clear that it wasn't, at, the light sensor only seemed to work about 50% of the time in our robot, but the marbles that were clear were a slightly different shape. And so it was actually categorizing based on how much bigger the marble was. But based on the marbles in the class, we were graded on if we could sort, you know, like we would get a 100% if we sorted all 100 marbles correctly. Now, I know if they were to bring in new marbles, we would have gotten a bad grade. But I, I said, no, you told us to make a machine that has a sensor that can sort these marbles and ours does it correctly 100% of the time. Give me an A plus, which is very similar to what you're talking about. You know, you can. And, and I think that's something we had a conversation before we started recording that there it's very easy, isn't it, to trick investors with this because you can make a set of data and it, maybe it's just 20 data points and it works every time with that 20 and then they go oh we got to invest millions of dollars into this company look they made it work but if they were to add more into the data set it wouldn't work at all right well, uh, or if they try their new their model in the real world then uh, suddenly you you have uh, new data maybe a slightly different angle if you're talking about pictures and maybe slightly different lighting condition and suck nothing works anymore yeah so really right you need so many different varied types of data to make something actually applicable in the real world and to train this network requires well it requires an immense amount of processing power yeah, doesn't it definitely like, do you want to go into that at all? Like the type of power you need? I mean, if I had to guess, I remember when I looked at some of the, and we will get more into the graphics card side of it um, eventually in this podcast for those listening. But I mean, from what I could tell, Volta, for instance, was a complete game changer and how quickly you could train some of these networks. Isn't that right? Well, uh, the biggest uh, upside of, of Volta was a tensor course. And I actually, Never liked using tensor cores for AI workloads because they are only where FP16 and some workloads you see absolutely no performance or accuracy regression. And then in some other workloads, mm. and I normally run quite weird workloads, uh, then you suddenly had a big problem with them. And uh, you, you could work around them, but this was uh, always a bit uh, a pain in the ass. and. I'm actually really, really happy about the change of Ampere that they are supporting FP23 tensor cores now. And I believe you also can run them 32-bit uh, mode. Okay, so before we get into that, though, you wanted to talk a bit about sparsity, right? Yeah. Because it's one thing to have more processing power. Obviously, more is always better, but that's expensive. But can you go a bit into how sparsity might make you do more with less? Uh, yeah, uh, sparsity is actually a really interesting concept, also first discovered in the 90s, like I said, most of the current state of the art. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, you, you have your, your gigantic neural network web with all of these millions uh, of, of connections. Mm -hmm. And uh, after you, you, you have trained uh, your model, not all of these connections are as important as, uh, as others. 
And the idea of sparsity is you, you train your neural net and you have to do it with a full neural net and then you pick uh, and then you sort which are the most important connections. Mm -hmm. These are then the connections you, you keep and you throw depending on your neural net and uh, workload. Uh, I don't know, 70 to 80 percent. Uh, I have sometimes seen 95 percent of connections and with this 95 percent of your required processing power away. Mm -hmm. and still get the same results or quite similar results. Yeah, I think you said to me it's kind of like pruning, right? Like it's wasting time. It's it's a like, like we're doing this with a lot of other things, like entirely different applications really and not directly comparable, but it's kind of like memory compression or I know like deferred rendering where it's like we know we don't actually need that information. So let's stop wasting time on it, right? Yeah, yeah, this technique, this uh, technique uh, to get um, the sparsity neural nets is actually called pruning. So, and one of the big problems with sparse neural nets is normal neural nets have this quite regular structure, and they were really easy to run on GPUs. And suddenly, you had uh, this uh, really uneven structure because you have ignored so many connections, uh, 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 intermediate connections or connections inside of your neural net. And you couldn't, I mean, you could uh, uh, perfectly run them on CPU, but who wants to run their models on CPU? Yeah. And what they did uh, until now, or one of the things I'm quite excited about MPS, that they have pruning support. And one of the things they did was uh, having a pruning mask. So a one zero mask, uh, and you would then uh, multiply your weights uh, and your connections with this mask. And so if you would uh, ignore them, this mask, uh, this number would become zero. And so multiplied by zero is zero. You, and so you would ignore it. But technically, you still had to uh, compute all of your connections. Even you throw, I don't know, 80% away. Mm -hmm. And Ampere seems to have uh, hardware support for it. At least they have oh, made wow. it sounded like that. Or just software support and NVIDIA is a bit uh, good on the marketing side. That's a pretty big deal if that's true. And it really is no surprise that they would put that much effort into it if it is hardware support. You know, they put all of this effort, right, into making memory compression on gaming graphics cards better and better so they can save money on how much bandwidth, and which is also saving energy, on how much bandwidth they need for gaming cards. It would make sense that if major feedback was, this is the feature we need, that we need to apply this to Ampere as well. And you said, you, you said earlier, I want to ask you a question, that you don't normally want to run, that there was, you had uh, pruning for CPU run AI neural networks, right? But that those are usually just a lot weaker than if you're using GPUs. Is that why you said you don't want to use those? Well, a lot slower and no one wants to wait this long. So I don't know. I guess I want to start getting into some more of the general AI and graphics card discussion. But is there anything else outside of what we just talked about that you want to tell people up front now, right, about training neural networks or sparsity itself? Not really. I think it's uh, it will be great for NVIDIA's gaming AI stuff uh, because they can uh, maybe at least uh, throw fifty percent of your of their compute requirement away for their AI ray tracing or something like that. So be excited. Okay. 
Lazy Physicist writes in and he says, listening to mainstream media, one might get the idea that AI is the solution to everything from self-driving cars to AI accelerated assistance like Siri. To which extent do you think AI will really revolutionize our daily lives in the next decade? Are there any unexpected areas in which you see it as a game changer? Well, a decade is actually quite a long time uh, Mm -hmm. to do research. I think uh, this question is better answered in how long do I think uh, we will reach uh, a self-adapting or quite fast self-adapting AI in the form of uh, general artificial intelligence. And, well, I don't know. We not even have a coherent definition of what intelligence even is. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess let me put it this way. When it comes to machine learning and AI and neural networks, all of these, you know, terms we use for like self-improving algorithms and algorithms that can categorize things for humans, algorithms that can, yeah, do things either that humans couldn't do before more effectively or really improve our lives. Like, what do you, where do you see applications going in the next five to 10 years? I mean, I guess I'll speak first. I mean, I I do think self-driving is going to get done. It will be production ready within five to 10 years. If it'll be in enough cars by then is an entirely different question. But I think like, so where do you see AI and all this going in five to 10 years? Well, uh, I mean, I, uh, I I see currently that in the industry, no, uh, not only uh, your big names, I don't know, Facebook, Google and Amazon are using AIs to improve their product flow or built in to their processes. But uh, I, I don't know, you can grab uh, off the shelf uh, image image classifier and suddenly have uh, uh, have a faulty part detection for a factory line. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you say off the shelf image categorizing, perhaps, you know, I mean, I don't know what that would really be, though. Do you mean like when you say off the shelf, do you mean something? I don't know, right? Wouldn't it more likely be like if you're a company and you want something to help you categorize things, you would just kind of outsource it to Amazon or something and say, hey, if we upload all this stuff, can your AI network run some stuff for us. I think that's I think that's kind of already happening now, isn't it? Uh yes and no. Uh, I mean, yeah, uh, there are clearly companies who are uploading their uh, sh- just their data to Amazon and uh, let them uh, deal with it, but um the inference requirements for a lot special uh, especially for a lot of the computer vision tasks are um quite uh, are not that high. You can run this uh, on a Raspberry Pi or on a Jetson mm-hmm. Nano or something, and uh, and uh, with quite cheap hardware and with off-the-shelf proven algorithms, as long as as, as your data set isn't uh, um, is properly, and these companies are just, uh, I mean, if you have a camera, a camera directly uh, above your factory line, and you just want to pick out some defect parts and uh, you could do this uh, I don't know 10 15 years ago with some other methods uh, but it would, but it was really expensive and now you can do this for basically nothing and uh, suddenly you have a completely automated solution for a problem and mm-hmm. I see uh, a lot of uh, growth in this areas and companies just right now start to adapt the technology that was uh, developed a couple years ago. And uh, also, 
suddenly problems that were never solvable uh, 10, 5 years ago are suddenly becoming solvable. Maybe you need to put a lot of work, a lot of hard work in, but uh, they, are, they are solvable. And uh, I think we will see a lot more of that one, especially of the specialized tasks. Like, what problem could we not solve five years ago that we can now? Well, I would say something like uh, voice to text uh, really sucked five, uh, five, ten years ago. And oh, yeah. Has become really well uh, these days. I, I and mean, so that was from machine learning that they made voice to text better in identifying what you were trying to say. Yeah, this, uh, this are machine learning systems. And, uh, and uh, for example, Google Translator also uses, mm-hmm. uses machine learning translating models. And Google Translator. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and Google Translator stops, uh, stopped uh, sucking uh, a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it works pretty great now for, well, for Western languages translating between each other. It gets a lot harder when you go to entirely, you know, Eastern language to a Western language because they're so different. Yeah. But I, I mean, it's still <laughs> it's still better than it used to be. Like if I go on Chip Hell right now and I let it translate it into English, I can make out what they're talking about now. Whereas I remember five years ago, if you were to go into a Chinese forum and have Google translate it, it would just be complete nonsense. You couldn't even figure out what they were trying to say. I mean, I guess I'd never thought about it. That makes sense that they're using neural networks for that. So I guess there's self-driving um, and, I, and I mean, yeah, I think in about five to 10 years, you already see it almost working now where you can have an earpiece in your ear and it can directly translate what someone's saying in another language next to you. Yeah. So I guess I see that coming. And that's actually going to be, I mean, for travel and communication, such an important thing. So I guess there's those two things. And I consider that short term, actually, five to 10 years. I know that's a lot of work and a lot of innovation, but I think of that as short term because I think people need to, this is my own opinion, uh, really level set what they expect, right, us to be able to do in a certain amount of time because there's so many challenges that we don't know are going to be challenges yet with any of this stuff. But what do you see in the midterm, and I think of this as midterm because of how long people live now, like what do you see happening with AI and machine learning over the next 20 to 40 years? <laughs> I know it's a long time, but I think of it as midterm because you have to think of like, do you think we will have like actual realistic AI, at least in our phones? I think that uh, 20 years for AGIs might be, uh, for actual AGIs uh, might be a, a realistic time frame. And you think we could have, like when people hear AI from a movie, you think we might actually have that in 20 to 30 years? Well, um, uh, it's actually a bit of a debate uh, inside of the machine learning or AI community. But mm-hmm. uh, I, um, uh, I believe that uh, intelligence is a function of its environment. And so as long as, uh, as, as no one starts uh, training a neural net uh, to end all humanity, uh, 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 AI is not going to, uh, to go and uh, figure, oh, I don't like humans, they're fucked, let's kill them all. Yeah, so I guess we're getting into long term. So you think it's realistic that we could have AI that we can talk to, maybe at least in decent conversations, 
like a human within 20 years. Or am I wrong? You think it'll take longer than 20 years? Personally, I do. I think it's going to take longer. Of course, I don't really know I anything about this. I think we are so. there already. In the last couple of years, um, natural language processing is not one of my real areas, but uh, mm -hmm. I hear a bit of stuff what's happened there. And uh, there have been a lot of... Uh, Uh, there have been a lot of advancements in this field and also in chatbots, and I think we are there. Yeah, but I can tell they're not a real person pretty quickly. I don't. I'm not talking about uh, about a chatbot. Uh, you go online if you have a complaint about a product you, you bought. Mm -hmm. I mean, actual the current state of the art research uh, AI, AIs. Yeah, I guess what I'll say is I haven't had a chance to talk to them. So you think within 20 years, we will see AIs like this in actual products? Maybe five years. Hmm. There's a lot of reader mails coming up that will touch on this. How do you see them relative to human intelligence? Are they as smart as a human? Obvi of course, they're probably better at math. But you know what I mean? Are they actually as smart? As a human, though, even if you can talk to them. Newer networks actually suck in math as much as humans do. Oh, <laughs> that's that's relieving to know. Uh, But are they as creative as I don't think I still think we're very far away from some type of AI, you know, and how do you put a number on creativity? You know, like when I look at what these things are doing, it's like I've seen some of them and they can have pretty impressive conversations. But I think it's pretty easy to break down the conversation. But maybe I'm wrong. You know, I don't pay attention to this space as much as you do, obviously. I mean, uh, now we are back at the point that we not even have a coherent uh, definition of what intelligence actually means. Mm -hmm. uh, but if we actually look, uh, have, uh, do you know the website, this person doesn't exist? Is that the one where you can type to it and it responds to you? No, no, I uh, think I... This is, uh, this is the NVIDIA image uh, style again, in this case, the uh, version 2. And uh, this is a generative adversary neural network. And uh, mm, let me explain what, uh, what again is. Uh, you have a generator neural network that tries to uh, come up, uh, uh, that uh, gets the input and uh, that tries to output something you want to have for, ex uh, for in this case, the image of a human. Mm -hmm. And then you have a, a second neural net that gets the input of your generator pl uh, plus some random samples from a data set. And the second neural net tries to tell the difference. And uh, uh, based on this genera generator adversarial uh, structure, Uh, the, uh, the generator will learn representations from the data set, and it's really quite uh, and it got really quite good in generating something like a human face or, or a car, for example, or just other things you uh, put in there. Uh, Which, for those who don't know, I did put a link in the description for this person does not exist. And yeah, I mean, the faces this thing is generating look like real people for sure. Uh, well, and uh, if you want to have different things, you just have to train your system with different data. Where, to be fair, there is mm. a big problem in getting the data. And um, one thing I haven't touched on before is uh, is neural network architecture. For certain tasks, you have to st structure your neural net 
differently and how and uh, sometimes you need bottleneck layers and sometimes you, you need uh, connections where you skip from a higher layer information to a lower layer and then it's also really um, uh, really difficult which loss function you, you use and you want maybe in different stages of your neural net different loss functions uh, so you stabilize the training. I mean, it's right. And, and and the reason you bring this up, though, I'm just thinking here is one of the reasons you bring up this. This person does not exist dot com is that if we can train this neural network to make faces that are just as realistic or indistinguishable from what would be a normal person's face. Are you saying there's no reason we shouldn't be able to make it simulate a real conversation? Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, you need a uh, you need a different uh, neural architecture for that. But I believe mm-hmm. uh, last for a couple of weeks ago there came a, a new paper from Facebook out, and they have completely open sourced their source code. Uh, this was a conversational AI a chatbot, and you can mm-hmm. download it, start it up, and have a conversation with um, with this AI. And, and does it talk or is it text? No, it, it's text-based. I mean, okay, you, you could obviously put a, a, a text-to-speech synthesizer at the output and you have a text-based mm. system. I mean, it's not that hard. That's true. So you said you touched on this a second ago, though. You don't really, it sounds like, right? Uh, Fatboy Diesel writes in, I guess I'll just say it this. How many people approach you with Terminator iRobot doomsday <laughs> scenarios when you talk about AI? Some people do, but surprisingly little. And I, and I think this is because AI is now used everywhere. And so uh, I don't know. I don't think that my coffee machine is a Terminator yet. <laughs> yet. And so do you see it being that eventually, though? Like, are you, I think you said you're not that worried about that, though, anytime no. soon. Uh, and I also think that uh, if it comes to species ending things, uh, nuclear weapons are much more dangerous than AIs, and we already have them. We already ha- have the ultimate means of self-destruction. Yeah. Yeah, it's something I've thought about, too, is like, we're so sure AI would try to kill us. And I'm like, well, but AI is made by people. So AI shouldn't try to kill us unless there's some evil scientist trying to make an AI that kills us. And that's an interesting point you bring up. If a scientist wanted to end humanity, it'd probably be a lot easier to try to get a hold of a nuke than to try to program an AI to kill us, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's a moment, definitely. And uh, if we are at the point where we have a lot of AGIs, still uh, still a lot easier to get hold of a nuke because then you have a lot of good AGIs also. Right. AI does what we tell it to, right? Uh, this, <laughs> At least yeah, for the time this being. This is what I uh, was alluding earlier to, that uh, I that I'm uh, of the opinion that intelligence is always a function of its environment. As long as you don't put your AI in an environment where, uh, where it wants to kill humans, uh, it's not <laughs> going to do that. Yeah. Well, the ninth dude writes in and he says, where is the bottleneck in AI training? Is it the actual compute power or is it something else entirely that we, the general public, do not really understand? I think we touched on this, but how would you answer that question? Mm, I mean, it's actually quite difficult uh, sometimes to get hold of proper data sets. Sometimes I had one time there I scraped a website and I had, I don't know, uh, 300,000 images. 
and then uh, I, I I can't use this images. I I can't use this. I can't use I can't use that. And in the end, I had a thousand five hundred examples. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> sometimes it really sucks. So hmm, how would I put this then? If I were, if you were to rank things and how they're bottlenecking. Oh, memory, memory. The ability to store the images. Uh, no, uh, uh, the ability uh, to have a large uh, or to feed, to have large enough models on my GPU and uh, training oh. actually uses up a lot of, of memory. And sometimes I need to, to input a lot of examples at once to stabilize, to stabilize the training. And uh, I also manage quite regularly to run out of memory on something like a V100, what has quite a lot of uh, memory in comparison to your gaming GPU. Uh, V100s come with 16 or 32 gigabytes. There is a 16 and a 32 version of it. Mm -hmm. There's also the CEO edition of the Titan Volta. <laughs> That's 32 what? What? gigabytes. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's a limited edition run. Um, right, so for those who most know that there's the Volta V100 Titan, and that is 12 gigabytes because they cut it down. But then there's also the Titan CEO edition, and it comes with Jensen Wang's signature on it, and it's a 32 gigabyte, 4096 uh, bit version. But I only think they made like 10 or 100 of those. It was it was a publicity stunt, kind of like the cyberpunk version of the 2018. Yeah. At that point, you can also just buy a V100. I believe they are also a version with a graphic output. Well, yeah, but this doesn't come with that. Wouldn't come with Jensen Wang's signature. On yeah, it, so. this is true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now we're getting into the conversation, though. Let's start turning into talking about A100, um, which is the the name of the GPU that comes from the GA100 die. Um, when I and again, you know, I I'm very surface level understanding of what numbers to look for. But when I looked at most of it, it looked like it was over twice as good as Volta. Would you say that's true? I actually haven't looked uh, at any numbers except that this, this has more memory. I always okay. can I, I always can wait a bit longer or just use more GPUs, but uh, I need a certain amount of memories or I just can't run my my models. Is this a difference between yes, I can do it and no, I can't do it? Well, <laughs> well, what I'm talking about though is I saw things like uh, 2.5 times the tensor performance of Volta mm -hmm. per card. And also, which I guess it oh, still yes. uses more energy, right? It goes up to 400 watts. But I also saw that it has FP or was it TF32 versus BF16? Well, uh, I always had uh, uh, for uh, for some workloads, it doesn't really matter if you run that in, uh, in FP23 or FP16. But uh, unfortunately, I run quite weird and edge case workloads, and I had it quite often that uh, it uh, gave me performance degradation. And uh, sometimes you want your best performance, and you could make it work with FP16, or you could just run your model in mixed precision, some layers in FP23, and some layers in FP16, or even some layers in FP64. Mm -hmm. But uh, this was always a pain in the butt to do. And uh, 
I'm really happy about that uh, I now get uh, FP23 tensor cores. Now I will use tensor cores for deep learning uh, purposes and not just completely, not just mostly ignore them. Yeah, you know, maybe I should pull up the specs for A100 right now because I also know that this is something coming out soon with FP8. The ability to run things in FP8 and FP4 workloads. You don't seem to be interested in any anything below FP32, are you? Not really, no. At least not hmm. for the things I do. Not for the things you do, right? No. Uh, I, I actually don't know where FP8 or FP4 would be useful in AI, but I'm not uh, all-knowing, so I don't know. For my new benchmarking station, I did use a legitimate key of Windows 10 Professional, and that's because it's just not expensive if you go to CDK Offers. They did sponsor me to say this, but I use their website, and it works well. They have great customer support, and if you use offer code BROKENSILICON, you'll get 25% off Windows software, and DieShrink gets you 3% off all software on the website, including game codes. I will reiterate, it was really easy for me to actually set up an account on this website, search for Windows, buy the code using whatever payment method I wanted, and they do have several options, and then I simply got sent the authentic key and downloaded Windows 10 from Microsoft's website. Save yourself some money to get more bones for your dog and don't stress yourself out using illegitimate keys. These are real keys and they did sponsor this part of the video. So one more time, that's cdkoffers.com. Use DieShring for 3% off all software on the website, including Steam games and broken silicon for 25% off software. All right, now let's get to the benchmarking. And so let's move forward then. Um, we're three. I'm starting to transition now out of the more professional realm into oh. gaming. Um, where, with regards to gaming, where do you see AI and ML benefiting us most in the short term? Mm, uh, I, we have talked about that one a bit earlier. Yes, we did talk about that before recording. Um, what we discussed before was that I saw some behind the scenes for a couple of video games. It was actually a decade ago, and I saw how they programmed the AI in like a first person shooter. I know one of them was Killzone 2, and they showed like the whole decision tree. And it was just pages and pages of ifs, ands, yes, nos. If he goes here, throw a grenade there, you know, call in for backup if this happens. And it's just a lot, a lot, a lot of kind of building on the AI you had really for the previous games to make them have more decisions they're capable of making and knowing better when to do certain things. Um, and I basically asked, like, do you see that improving drastically with any of the, like, you know, with neural network training? Like, are, could we use that to better train these decision trees uh, that, like, you see in first-person shooters? You know, I'm not talking about an RTS game or you know, like something like StarCraft or anything with like tons of mobs. I'm talking just like 
you know, 10 versus 10 uh, first-person shooters, like, do you think neural networks can be used to improve those decision trees? Mm, I have thought about that, uh, and I don't think uh, that... Uh, I think it still ma- makes sense uh, to use decision tree systems, but then it also could be a good idea to use a neural network uh, to, uh, to always adjust some of the parameters of your mm-hmm. uh, decision tree uh, to make the eyes a bit harder or a bit easier uh, so you always have the optimum uh, enemy oh. uh, for, uh, for you as a player. I mean, uh, I believe a game has three settings, uh, easy, mi- medium, and hard. And you could really, really fine-tune a lot of the parameters for you as a specific player and always have a fun opponent uh, to play off or against. Yeah, because and that's really an interesting discussion and something I wouldn't mind talking about a bit just because it's you know fun to talk about. Is I think for some types of games, maybe we need to put effort into making them more realistically hard. And I say realistically hard because it's like, I don't know if anyone's played like, I think it was the first maybe Call of Duty Black Ops where you could play against AI and multiplayer maps and they were just bone stupid. <laughs> like They were like incapable of really any strategy. They would basically just walk in directions and shoot at you. But they, if you put it on hard, they would just insta-lock onto you and one hit you with a sniper rifle across the map. It was completely unfair as how a human would describe it because no real person is like that good at noticing you and hitting you with the first shot. So they really weren't smart though. And I wonder how much you can use machine learning to tweak actions to act more like a person does and make them better at realistically communicating with each other, moving like each other. Because that's what I think would be the ultimate fun in realistic AI and like a first or third person shooter is like, oh, they act like a they can't instantly communicate with each other. They don't have a hive mind and they can't insta shoot you and lock on across the map. But maybe they're smart enough to know, oh, I'm low on health. Let me back up behind this cover and wait for someone else to show up and help me. Let me throw a grenade here at the right time when he's reloading. You know, that type of improvement, I think, is interesting. But then also what you just touched on is, is it always fun to make the AI better than us, right? Or do we want to be better than the AI because we like winning? Well, I don't think that uh, uh, that we need AI to uh, or neural nets uh, to build this game AI. So we can still do that uh, with, decision, with decision trees uh, and maybe just build them a bit of random delay. And uh, if it comes to taking cover, I think the really big problem there is actually the pathfinding and the, and the mm. calculation overhead. And especially if we get more CPU cores and threads, what we are apparently uh, getting. Uh, uh, I think we can solve a lot of these problems uh, just uh, still with, uh, with decision trees and make a, or at least fake a realistic experience and if in the end what's count. And then maybe my idea where you have some kind of AI fine-tuning system for some or for parameters in your decision tree to always uh, make the AI that's a perfect opponent for you. A funner opponent, like maybe yeah, we notice yeah. people play longer if he plays this way. Uh, just to be clear, uh, I think it's possible, but it's hard to do. Not that uh, someone comes out tomorrow with a startup and says, hey, I do this for games. It's probably quite easy. A guy on a podcast had said that it's possible. I think it's possible, but hard to do. 
<laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe they'll use it for marketing, but you don't see it being widespread that you like, oh, we use machine learning to train our AI to be more fun to play with. You don't see that being that applicable for a few years, for more than a few years, right? It depends on when they started on working on, but yes. Okay. Let me start shifting into another conversation then here. Uh, Lucas Hulse writes in and he says, what will it take for machine learning to shift away from a reliance on CUDA? Is there any worthwhile pipeline for non-CUDA ML development? Uh, unfortunately, not really. And the thing uh, that needs to happen to shift away from CUDA is uh, a really good, uh, is, is, yes, a good software. From stack. AMD, right? Yeah, from AMD or from, uh, from some other players, maybe. Uh, I mean, graph course coming up from Cerberus, and um, I had a look at the AMD software stack for machine learning the other day in preparation for this podcast, mm -hmm. and I remembered uh, looking at it a couple years ago when it first came out and was uh, absolute garbage and complete unusable. And I looked at it the other day, and it actually becomes usable, uh, but AMD kind of suck their communication. Apparently, would you say then that a few years ago, or even just let's say two years ago, AMD was basically a non-option compared to NVIDIA when it comes to machine learning cards? I mean, because they would market Vega for that sometimes, but you're saying it because of the software support and the software stack, it was just really not an option. I would say the software stack uh, is uh, the single most important thing when making a decision for. Uh, for compute for machine learning compute accelerator, and mm -hmm. uh, if uh, I don't know, my, uh, my boss would ask me, should we invest in an AMD server? I would say no. And you would still say no, but they're getting better. Yeah, they are getting better, but I would still say no. Mm -hmm. It was interesting when I was at Hot Chips. One of the things there is, you know, they would have these meet and greets after some of the conference or after some of the presentations. At one evenings, I sat there, you know, we were all just at random tables and one guy next to me, um, he was actually from Germany and he worked on some neural network training as well. It was, it, was, it was for very small ones, really introductory stuff. But he said that the Xavier platform from NVIDIA was just unrivaled, that, you know, he would rather use it over a full, powerful AMD system just because of how easy it was to use and how much how easy it was to get working on. Yeah, the Xavier system or in general, um, NVIDIA's uh, Jetson, uh, Jetson product family. That's what I meant to say, yeah. Jetson, actually. Yeah, Jetson Xavier is just uh, one part of their product family. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, they are having a Linux operating system with pre-installed CUDA and C, and CQNN, what is it's the same software stack you use on a ML server or on your workstation, and mm -hmm. so it, uh, you just need to uh, need to grab your your Python code, your TensorFlow PyTorch code, uh, put it over there, and it will run. I mean, it's really uh, luxurious how easy that is. Yeah. Well, let me ask this then. So, outside of AMD, which you say is improving, but still isn't quite there yet. Um, what about these other up-and-comers? You know, Cerebris looked really interesting with their wafer-scale chip. Like, what do you think about them? 
Uh, well, I think uh, this will be interesting. Uh, I have actually here a price figure, and just to be clear, not that they are uh, not uh, that I create another Gerüchteküche situation where uh, where I claim I am a different source. I have here um, Ian Cutters from Antec talking mm -hmm. with Wendell on a, from Level One Tech on a live stream, and he mentioned. Um, a one million dollar price tag for one of their systems, right? Uh, and that's just with one wafer scale chip. In yeah, it, right? so um, which is big. Let's be fair. Yeah, yeah and <laughs> quite powerful. And uh, apparently, uh, fifteen kilowatts of TDP. Uh, what is uh, for your um, metric folks? Fifteen thousand watts of uh, heat output. <laughs> but it's yeah. quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It is. And again, for those who don't know, this is a wafer. They they came up with a the required technology to make one die the entire silicon wafer, or almost the entire. It's actually a square shape. Um, and it's like 33,000 millimeters squared. Um, and, and because they did that, though, they can put an immense amount of low latency cash on it. And for AI research, it's supposedly very impressive, but like, do you think it's, you said you had some numbers, like it's more efficient than if you had DGX1 systems from NVIDIA? I was actually a bit uh, spitballing because uh, I, uh, I know uh, I is the largest neural net that was currently co-entrained as a language model, and that was trained by Microsoft AI. And uh, uh, what I have feared is that they burned through a quarter of a million uh, dollars uh, just to train it. And the result was that it was a bit better than the smaller model. And, <laughs> a uh, bit. Yeah, yeah, a bit. And if you are uh, on the scale where you have to burn to a quarter of a million dollars on electricity uh, um, alone, uh, you can also just invest in something like this wafer scale uh, system. And mm -hmm. I believe some of the Google AI or, the, or DeepMind paper, they actually burn to multiple millions in hyperparameter tuning just to get state-of-the-art performance with the algorithm. So... I mean, uh, their wafer scale system is probably nothing I will ever work on, but mm -hmm. it's, I think, more suited for the supercomputing and this big tech company market. Yeah, you're saying it uses a ton of energy, but if the performance is there, they are already wasting so much energy. It doesn't really matter if it's a million dollars per computer. You're spending more on the electricity anyways, right? Yeah, I don't remember the number, but I'm quite certain to train this model. They used over a thousand V100s. So. Oh, wow. So do you think that Cerebrus will... I guess, what's your gut feeling? Do you see Cerebrus really taking business from what NVIDIA is being used right now or not? Uh, the great thing about NVIDIA solution is they are scalable. I can buy w one Tesla and it sets me back uh, 10 grand or something like that, mm -hmm. depending on general availability. Uh, or, and if I need more compute, I can just go and, uh, and, and buy I'm more right. and I can scale that one up. Uh, so, mm -hmm. I, so I see the, uh, the Cerebros uh, wafer scale uh, system just for this really uh, high-end uh, 
a, a high-scale market. And mm -hmm. there's actually a, another AI, a hardware accelerator startup I'm quite excited about, and that is Graphcore. Well, why don't you tell me about them? Because I actually don't know really anything about Graphcore. Well, uh, Graphcore is another startup that tries to develop a specialized hardware ground-up design for, for AI workloads. And the thing that I'm actually excited about is how they are treating their, their software stack and their communication. And I think AMD really could learn something from them. So their software is competitive with NVIDIA, if not better, you're mm, saying? I don't think yet, but it's, uh, it's a lot about uh, the messaging. If I go on, on, on their website, I can really e quickly and easily find information if I to figure something out about the AMD software stack, I need to go to five different websites and scatter some documentations. And their website is really easy to navigate. Uh, uh, I'm on it right now. It is really easy to find a quote for how much these servers generally cost and what they're capable of. And I know nothing, right? <laughs> yeah, and uh, it, it, it's also really easy to, uh, to find a, a, a long paper where they go in details how exactly the, the software works. And I believe... Uh, couple of weeks ago when I uh, when I looked there, the, there were banner, oh, we are making a live stream where our developers are talking, join us and have a conversation with, uh, with us. And they also uh, have uh, quite easy to find a form where you can say what features you really want to see in the software stack. And it's just a lot about uh, their, their marketing and how they're communicating to me that they actually care or that they understand how important the software stack is. And yeah, I like that. Yeah, it's interesting you say that about AMD because again, and I, I always end up relating things to gaming, but it's, you know, I think it's an app comparison. If you want to find information about NVIDIA's gaming graphics cards, it's insanely well organized. Google an NVIDIA graphics card. You could just Google 2080 Ti. You'll go to the website. You can find the specs quickly. They have all of these nice bar graphs that compare it to all of their previous cards. Of course, they don't mention AMD at all. They're just like, if you have this NVIDIA graphics card, this is how much better it is. And look at these cool pictures. And here's how much they cost. You can order one from us right now. And it's if you go to AMD's website, it's like, uh, I mean, it's a lot better than it used to be. I would argue AMD basically didn't have a website for products about five years ago. Um, and I, I could say the same thing about their AI software stack. Yeah, it's improving. It's definitely way better. But it's funny just to make that comparison because, you know, navigating AMD's website to find information about CPUs and GPUs is still just nowhere... I just don't get why it's so badly organized. Yeah. In fact, Dan was telling me, like, even Intel, like, you go to Intel Arc, and you can find anything you need to know about an Intel processor, and it's super easy. I don't know why. I, I, I think that's something that's hard to quantify, but a lot of business comes from just being able to find the info quickly by Googling it. Yeah, if, if I need to sit down and uh, really look two hours into some documentations or some references... Uh... I'm staying at NVIDIA. And I believe mm. it thought had it in the video, or maybe it was you that uh, AMD has... Probably both. <laughs> yeah, that uh, AMD has a lot of great... Uh, to relate it back to gaming. That, uh, that uh, AMD has a lot of great software features for gaming, but there are zero marketing for it. Oh, yeah. I've talked about that. Cortex has, Adore yeah, has. Yeah. It's obvious. It's like... 
It's like an example. I remember, I mean, God, how many examples do I need to give? I think, I think Adored specifically talked about this one. And I agree is you remember that like true audio thing with the 290X launch and like AMD really put a lot of effort into having superior audio quality. If you ran audio through their graphics card and there was zero marketing. And you're seeing this even being implemented into the next gen consoles that were supposedly have really good audio. And yet it seems like Microsoft and Sony will be better at marketing AMD's audio quality than AMD will themselves. <laughs> yeah, if, uh, for, uh, if you have watched the NVIDIA keynote, uh, mm-hmm. I believe uh, most of the time they actually talked about uh, their software stack, about uh, their software. And uh, especially for the AI world, uh, the most important uh, thing for me is their software stack. And if their cards, I don't know, 30% is the same in compute, I call it the same. Uh, if, uh, and if the software stack of one is definitely uh, better than the other, uh, it's quite clear to me, it's quite easy to make a decision uh, from which uh, supplier I get my uh, deep learning GPUs. And what I think AMD needs to go, I mean, there are, uh, there are bloggers out there who write articles about uh, deep learning and AI, and I think they, are, they have to sample some of the GPUs to disguise just to get uh, the community talking about. Mm-hmm. And uh, just having a third-party look at the software stack, what basically non-existence, if you really want to know how the software stack worked, uh, I don't know, the cheapest option is buying uh, uh, buying a Radeon 7 and trying it out for a couple of days or weeks. Uh, it's quite funny, too, because if you look at what's about to happen with Ampere versus RDNA 2 in gaming, um, this is something I keep emphasizing, and it's actually funny to see people go, oh, now Tom's switching to NVIDIA content. And it's like, no, there's just a lot of NVIDIA stuff to talk about right now. and. Um, I've actually emphasized in my Ampere video that based on what I've been told, RDNA 2 could be hardware-wise just as impressive. I mean, let's talk about what we know, right? We know that RDNA 2, the big one, like with, it should have 80 compute units on like 505 millimeters squared. From what I've heard recently, um, GA102, which will be the top gaming chip most likely, that one is probably around 540 millimeters squared. Okay, that's pretty similar die sizes. And then it's probably going to have 84 compute units versus AMD's 80. It sounds like they both, I mean, look at the PlayStation 5, that's 2.23 gigahertz. Sounds like they're both going to clock to around 2.3 gigahertz on desktop. I mean, it. I've heard that on paper, RDNA 2 is supposedly going to be very, very good at machine learning. I mean, so if you look at top Ampere GA102 and top 80 compute unit RDNA 2, it sounds like they're very competitive, that it might be a photo finish in performance. But so then it's going to come down to the software, it, right? Well, yeah, That's it, what's going to make it win. And it's not about NVIDIA having a lead, but if DLSS works better, and they have better drivers at launch, and they actually, yeah, you know, um, it, it's gonna. I think it's gonna come down to software, and that's a bit concerning to hear. You know, all of this software talk in the background from Ampere, and a bit of silence out of Radeon right now. Yeah, uh, I think the uh, Radeon PR team really needs to step up their software communication skills. Yeah. 
But let's see here. I think that's most of what I have to say about AMD versus NVIDIA for today. Let's get to a few more reader mails to wrap this up. So let now just bear with me here. Answer as best you can. Uh, Jake Dude 23 writes in and he says, if you were to compare the most powerful supercomputer to an animal's brain, <laughs> what kind of animal would it be? Uh, for example, is it like, I, and I think that what he's saying is it might have a lot of processing power, but is, is the world's smartest supercomputer similar to a super smart human or is it similar to like an incredibly intelligent insect do you know what he means by that question yeah i i believe uh the thing is a supercomputer is a blank slate uh it depends on the software you need to run on it but uh, maybe he also means how much compute would it be uh, uh in comparison and there i sure i'm sorry i have no idea i never <laughs> I, I i never compared my uh, deep learning models with animals well, and I mean, let's be honest too. I'm not even sure how you would classify that because we're still not even sure how to think of how smart a human brain is, right? I mean, or storage, right? Like I've heard that for saving certain types of storage, we're talking about a human brain's capable of holding petabytes and exabytes, you know, of information. But it's just like, what information? Because as sure as heck can't hold a whole movie correctly. Mm. Um, and, and I would say that's probably similar with intelligence is that it's just very hard to do a one-to-one -one comparison between any type of AI to an intelligence of any type of biological animal. And I do, I would go as far as to say, it's hard for us to tell which human's smarter, right? Some people are really good at solving certain types of problems and then other people are just horrible at it, but then are way better at other types of problems. Yeah. So I'd say it's even hard to compare human intelligence. Uh, I agree. <laughs> yeah. Clean Sweep writes in and he says, how big a disparity is there between the common person media's perception of AI for commercial use and the reality of current development? For example, and I, a lot of people ask similar questions because, for example, there have been articles about how AI for information processing generation tasks um, could be created within five to 10 years. But what kind of AI do you think can truly be realized in that time frame? I guess we kind of answered this question already. Yeah, didn't we? Yeah, but I, uh, do you have anything to add to it or add to the question? What do you think the biggest disparity between mainstream perception and reality is? I uh, I think um, uh, the mainstream uh, uh, just sees AI as a coherent thing, and uh, in reality, it's a bunch of different uh, approaches and a bunch of, of, of different uh, techniques and uh, some aspects of it work really well and some don't. And it's not a coherent thing. I think that's a common misconception with anything that becomes a buzzword <laughs> or hits the mainstream zeitgeist is people just want to put everything into one category and say that's cryptocurrency or that's AI. And the fact of the matter is a lot of these things that you're calling the same thing are just not just not the same. And I, I guess the other thing, too, is you said and there's a bazillion links in the description for people who want to read about some of this stuff. One thing I'll say is that when I was reading through some of the papers, it became abundantly clear just how little you if you don't actually do this stuff, understand the problems that come up that it's easy to communicate what you can do theoretically. 
but that it's so hard to foresee the roadblocks to finishing a project or, or to convey why it's hard to make it work, right? Yeah, the definitely. Uh, when I am working on the hard problems that are not just taking a model and throwing no da- uh, new data in it, uh, I have to train the model a couple hundred times, uh, always with small tweaks and to look where is the model now not performing and just, uh, I believe you and Dan have talked about it, that if something not works, you have to methodically go uh, eliminate uh, error mm-hmm. sources and uh, just track down why it's not working and try to fix it. And uh, so uh, I'm not only training a model once, I'm training it a bunch of times to get it to work in the end. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we have another question here from Edward Huff, but I don't know that I'm going to ask it because I'm not even sure how to ask it. It's very hard for me to understand exact this exact question. But what I would say to Edward Huff is I know you sent a paper for this that I think is the last link in the description, if not one of the last links. So and, and I would say that too, that if anyone listening to us talk, like I am completely, you know, not an expert on not even I wouldn't even say I'm an entry level understander to this. If there's if you want to read about some of the stuff we're talking about, uh, we have a lot of papers in the description and links to even just Wikipedia articles about some of the c- things we talked about that you can read on your own. I actually did find of it's, some of it really interesting to read just for fun myself. Uh, I guess the last thing I'll ask you is, is there anything else you want to talk about? Any, any messages you want to convey about the work you do or any subjects you know, when it comes to AI? Uh, a lot of uh, the explanations I have given are so uh, overly uh, simplified that they are basically useless as you useless as you want to build with them an AI system. I don't know. AI is hard. AI is hard. Yeah, it's not a magic bullet. And I think that's something that we saw with DLSS, which we're starting to see DLSS 2.0 actually work which is an accomplishment that it works at all (laughs) in a few games, but that, you know, it's really easy to market DLSS, the concept. I remember when Turing was first announced and they were just like, what this does is it uses, you know, machine learning to take a lower resolution, you know, image and quickly, you know, with an algorithm we've made, up-res it and look better than anything you could ever get before. And everyone understands that. Oh, so you're using machine learning to do better upscaling and clean up the parts of the images that people will actually notice. That's easy to understand, but making it actually do it better than just running it at a lower resolution (laughs) turned out to be really, really hard. And that's a pretty simple example that still took NVIDIA a lot of effort. So I'd just say in terms of people saying it's a magic bullet, That's a perfect example right there. And I imagine there's going to be a lot of things when it comes to machine learning over the years where out of nowhere, something works really well, but then out of nowhere, another thing just doesn't work because there was a problem that's hard to explain, right? Yeah, uh, I think uh, it it also took a lot of work to get uh, through a point where they had DLS1. So Yeah, and we don't know how long they were working on that in the background too. Well, I don't really have any other subjects to talk about. We got through the script. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about at all, whether it comes to any of these companies? Mm, Not really, no. Okay. Well, uh, you know, thanks for coming on. I know you're in Germany, and 
What t- what time is it where you are right now? Uh, we are approaching two o'clock in the morning. You're probably going to go to sleep pretty soon. I guess I'll start dinner then. Although you were saying how you're such a night owl anyway, so that's at least good. Yeah, I'm fine with this time. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. Again, to anyone who listened, links in the description. Remember to um, you know share this, subscribe to Broken Silicon on your favorite podcast app, and give us a review. And uh, yeah, we'll see you in the next episode. The following podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and select technical editing by Carbon Cry. You can find all of our information, including how to get a hold of us, at www.moreslawsdead.com. And if you are a fan and would like to send mail or other hardware, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead, P.O. Box 10468, Peoria, Illinois, 61612. And speaking of fans, without exaggeration, the patrons are solely responsible for the continued distribution of the content you just listened to. And so if you have some extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, the Moore's Law is Dead Discord, full of like-minded people who would love to meet you. I am one of them. The Discord is only at $1, and at higher tiers, you get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the back catalog of Flyover States podcast, thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts and other perks as well. And if you cannot afford to support us, please just share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media and Reddit. And give Broken Silicon and Flyover States a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. All of this really does help so much more than I think anyone realizes. If you'd like to advertise on the podcast or a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its fans supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Bootman, Carbon Cry, Dean, Benny Berlin, Justin Yant, Thomas Rupp, I Love You, Lynn and Jim, Bollocks, Jordan Betcher, Muhammad Al-Khawari, Frederick Lau, James Crasta, Justin Parrish, Zachary Martin, Terrence Herod, Brad Medlin, Phil S., Thyrister, The Ninth Dude, Greg Renegar, John Bible, Chrysantine, Night Rogue 77, The Mechanical Philosopher, Lebo King Kilo, Fatboy Diesel, Daniel Hyde, Matthew McMullen, Christoph Novak, Neil X01, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, Sexy, VI Pass, Sadler Sadler, Richter Cohagon, Elethros, Telos, Caden Picknell, Greg T. Wanchuk, Jacob Barber, XO T. Care Bear, Matthew Lane, Paul Jones, Jan Rauner, Robert Ducks, Edward Huff, Allie Robertson, Hardforum.com, Jonathan, Rita Full, Evan Dingle, Nick Neasy, Dominic Dewark, Harold P. Bureau, Wayne, Sam MacArthur, Total Silo, TSPCFS, Michael Costum, Andrew S., Blake, Aaron Keith, AJ Klein, Endless Loggins, Hector Santana, and Justin Brennan. Of course, thank you to Sahara for the music. Mm-hmm.